0: the Outspoken Cyclist, the weekly conversation about cycles, cyclists, travel, trails, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. WJCU broadcasts and streams the Outspoken Cyclist on-air show at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. In Northeast Ohio, tune in to 88.7 FM, or worldwide, listen in at wjcu.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks.
1: Hello and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for April 10th, 2021. I hope you had a great holiday if you celebrated and are enjoying some of the great spring weather. Loosely translated means I hope you are able to get out and ride. This week's show started out a lot differently from the way it has ended up. We do have a fabulous conversation with Max Pratt, a young and very talented frame designer builder from Providence, Rhode Island, and I think you'll find his perspective about frame building and the other projects he supports refreshing and somewhat unusual. Max will be with me in the second half of the show. There was also another very interesting and pertinent topic I was ready to offer up and went ahead with a great conversation about that, too. It's all about climate and carbon emissions and what business and industry is doing along those fronts. But I've bumped that piece until next week, and here's why. Much more urgent news has made headlines. Specifically, Arkansas and the laws that are and will continue to affect transgender athletes, as well as young people, who are, as Molly Cameron put it in her piece in Bicycling Magazine this week, quote, navigating identity and just trying to be themselves in a state that clearly does not care about them, unquote. So to discuss all the ramifications of what is happening in Arkansas, especially as it pertains to the UCI and USAC, the World Championship cross races, and the threats of boycotts, We talked with Tim Jackson, whose editorial and bicycle retailer, The Industry Has an Arkansas Problem, tried to make the case for pulling the USAC and World Cross Championships out of Fayetteville this summer. We know that the Walton family and the Visit Bentonville Arkansas organizations have invested heavily in making Arkansas a welcoming place for bicycling with a deep and honest commitment to mountain biking. But in the wake of new laws targeting the LGBTQ+ plus community and especially transgender youth, Visit Bentonville's President Kayleen Griffin was only willing to offer a one-line comment about the controversy of the new laws, stating, quote, we're committed to inclusive trail and visitor experiences in our city and welcome everyone to Visit Bentonville, unquote. The Walton Foundation's Tom Walton issued a written statement on April 6th that begins, Quote, we are alarmed by the string of policy targeting LBGTQ people in Arkansas. This trend is harmful and sends the wrong message to those willing to invest in or visit our state. End quote. But do the Walton Foundation and the Chambers of Commerce have any clout that might move legislature toward rescinding these draconian laws? Here's my conversation with Tim Jackson. Tim Jackson, welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. It's been a week. Crazy! It has, and, and you've been it part of indeed. it. It has, it has. So, I, I before you and I went on air, I told you that I had spoken with Kayleen Griffith, who's the president of Visit Bentonville, back in January, and now. Arkansas is looking Mm -hmm. a little grim when it comes to cycling. So you wrote a great, great editorial in Bicycle Retailer. uh, Just, let's see, today's what, the ninth? So a couple of days ago, titled The Industry Has an Arkansas Problem. Go ahead and let's start with the issues that you see and uh, where this might go.
2: Uh, Well, thank you for the compliment on the editorial to start. And as far as the, the legislation that's been past there in Arkansas, it's obviously very anti-transgender and very discriminatory and endangers uh, the health and well-being of a minority of the population that is very much at risk. It, it's a human rights issue. And quite honestly, it's, it's one that just can't be looked past simply because this population represents... Such a small part of the cycling community, uh, and as well as the broader uh, community, but nonetheless, it's it's impossible to to just let this one slide, um, the way Steve Demartini at, at USA Cycling uh, seems to be willing to do. Um, I, I don't see how, as an industry that prides itself or attempts to pride itself at being inclusive and wanting to be even more inclusive, how we can ignore this and continue to ignore it because it's, it's a reality for a greater percentage of people in the industry than many people want to think because of the fact that cycling as, as an industry and as a sport has been a bit more left than right, if you will. So we do have, uh, to a degree, an outsized part of our population, our community, that does fit into the transgender world. Um, we have a lot of people in our community who are LGBTQ, and you know we have to we have to stand up for them. I have too many friends and family who are in that community to to simply go, well, it doesn't affect that many people, or or whatever. I, I, there's no way for me to gloss over it. There just simply isn't.
1: So let me play devil's advocate for just one moment the yeah. isu- the issue in arkansas right now is the fact that the uci and usac besides the draconian laws so i mean i mean they mm-hmm. without that that goes without saying that what they're doing in arkansas on a broad scale is not okay but usa cycling and the U- uci have invested heavily in the world cross cyclocross championships at Fayetteville Mm -hmm. in Arkansas and so and your your uh editorial addressed that saying listen you know I'm sorry buddy but this is still something you're going to have to think about so what would it take to move this already in place enormous event out of Fayetteville, and where is it going to go? Of course, you know, Major League Ball figured out how to get the All-Star game yeah. out of out of Georgia to Denver in, in less than a few days, but we're the bicycle industry. Yeah.
2: Well, and that's an excellent point about MLB, because you look at MLB, they're a multi-billion dollar corporation and franchise that is global. So the potential financial risk That they have is significantly greater than anything cycling could ever begin to dream of. We're just not on the same scale, and yet, they took a stand almost immediately, and I I applaud them. And it's rare that I applaud baseball. Don't (laughs) get me wrong. Uh, So you know, that's that's almost an uncomfortable confession to make. But in terms of cycling, we have ten months to move the the world, uh, cyclocross worlds. Out of Arkansas, that's that is absolutely doable and uncomfortable. Absolutely, you know, and I, I made a remark on on Twitter days ago um, about uh, the uncomfortable situation that they are in. And, and Brooke Watts, who is the promoter for the event and who was the man behind um, Cross Vegas and Las Vegas, super good guy. I know that he's caught between a rock and a rock. <laughs> he's he's not in a spot he wants to be in at all. And he's just the monkey who's doing the work for the UCI and US USAC. He's contracted by them to put the event on, basically. So, you know, he's he's in a bad spot, undoubtedly. But the, the event can be moved and you know they, they have the option of staying in Arkansas and losing money because of the boycott and the negative impact that will come from that. Or they can move the event and lose money because of contracts they're, that they're going to have to break to get out of Arkansas and then the cost of moving to another location. But they gain some recognition for doing the right thing finally. So, you know, I get it. It's not a win-win, but, you know, they, they, they are left with a really, really bad situation. Um, but again, you know, human rights are human rights. And if this was a law that um, was passed that, say, legalized lynching, even though USAC doesn't have an elite black rider who will be competing for the team at CX Worlds i don't think they would want to send a team right and i think that they would say you know enough is enough and you know if we choose one minority over another as as others have said it's all or none you take all of us or you take none of us and until that happens w- you know we we got to take a stand and one of the things that I left out in that editorial that I really should have done a better job of clarifying is that this isn't just about CX worlds. It is about the the fact that there's there's a U.S. Cup mountain bike race going on in Arkansas this weekend. Aha. So, you know there's there the, the water is muddy and I totally understand that the the event organizers and the people on the ground there were really caught off guard to a degree. I mean all of this was was happening. The legislation you know was rolling for weeks and months before. So there was some opportunity to be aware of, ooh, this could be bad. But taking that off the table, just the fact that they were already there when all of this landed on them, I, I get that they're in a little trickier position than an event that's happening in 10 months. Totally get that. But I've I've yet to see really profound statements from the brands and people involved. Um, Yet. I know, I know that there are some. I just haven't had a chance to dig through the weeds. So much has been happening over the past few days. Holy moly. And it's good. A lot of good stuff is happening. A lot of good conversations are happening. That's true. But I did want to clarify that it's not just about CX Worlds. It really is about Bentonville and everything going on.
1: Right. In and Arkansas. Fayetteville and just the state, the state yeah. of Arkansas. Let me take another moment to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Tim Jackson. He owns Pow Word Communications, awesome name for a company, action figure. And he penned a great editorial in Bicycle Retailer on uh, April 7th. We will put a link to it on the Outspoken Cyclist blog that will accompany the show this week, uh, titled The Industry Has an Arkansas Problem. And and it's just an interesting way of of couching it. So I want to go a little bit beyond this and see... Uh, something else there's a lot of controversy over whether transgender athletes should compete with binary athletes especially athletes on the par of a Rachel McKinnon and she was or I I mean I haven't heard from her in a long time I haven't seen anything about her in a long time a very prominent transgender track rider and Mm -hmm killed it at Track Worlds a couple of, of years ago. So I'm not sure how we reconcile both of these positions. I, I absolutely respect and and I know transgender people. I think it's very important that we acknowledge and give them every possible opportunity to be who they are. And so I'm wondering, what's the best way to begin categorizing people maybe we should just stop categorizing people altogether
2: you know that's that is one of the the stickiest parts of the entire conversation and it's something that i admit uh, up front and loudly that i i don't have the answer for and i wish that i did because it would sure make things easier for all parties involved if right. there was just simply an answer and um rachel mckinnon is a fantastic athlete and I give her all credit for what she did. I know that there was controversy around her win, obviously, but I think that the controversy was smaller than the amount of people who were applauding her and her accomplishment. I know other trans athletes who do not at all dominate in their categories and who don't seek to dominate in their categories. They merely wish to be recognized as who they are and be afforded the same opportunities to live their life the way others live theirs, and that's that's what really is part of what hits home for me. I have two daughters, one of which came out to me as being bisexual when she was only thirteen. The other came out to me as being non-binary and change of pronouns to they/them at the ripe old age of ten, and so. Even though I don't have a transgender child, I have two children who are on the spectrum of LGBTQ, who are a part of that community. I've lived in San Diego's gay community, uh, literally inside the, the neighborhood that is most associated with the gay community of San Diego for well over 20 years, and uh, proudly. and have participated in our pride parades and have a lot of friends within the community. So this is something that is extended family and literal family for me. And again, even though I do not have a transgender child or relative in my family, it shouldn't be a qualifier at all. <laughs> you know, it's it's something we should all care about because again, as as much as it's become a, a hashtag, uh, trans rights are human rights. And I, I, I believe that in my in my very bones. And I think that we as an industry and as a sport, we have an obligation to live up to what we state our values are when it comes to inclusivity and have these very difficult conversations. I don't have an answer for how we should go about it, but I know that we have to have these conversations. And I think that when we look at Arkansas and we look at Tennessee and we look at other states and there are a lot. I, I was trying to find the number prior to our conversation of the number of bills that are currently floating through state houses across the country that are anti-trans. And the number is astonishing. It is similar to the number of bills that are going through states to restrict voter rights. There's right. there's definitely a, a momentum going right now that is morally reprehensible to me and is restrictive. And I think that we have to stand and unite against that if that's who we are. If we as a sport and an industry are going to claim that we are inclusive and believe in fairness for all, then we have to put our money where our mouths are. And right now, this is the opportunity to do that. And I think that boycotting sucks. I hate it (laughs) because there are a lot of good people in Arkansas who are doing a lot of good things and fighting the good fight, not just for Arkansas, but for all of us. And I think that we need to give them resources. And, you know, I think it would be great if we move the events out of Arkansas, but funnel money back into them, like, you know, really give the people on the ground fighting the fight the tools to fight the fight inside their state because they're doing it not just for them for all of us but we need to not funnel a bunch of money into the state's tax base where they continue to profit off of it because once you take that revenue stream away from the politicians and the policymakers, lo and behold you get their attention right that's why georgia is so pissed off about mlb moving that baseball game
1: oh yeah absolutely follow the money there's no question about it follow the money follow the money Well, you did bring up something that's really, really important. And that is for an industry that has found itself being called the, you know, white boy industry for so Mm -hmm. many decades. And I pale, male and stale, pale, male and stale. And you even said that in your in your um, editorial. But having been a woman in the industry for over 40 years, you know, I am not as much in the minority as I used to be. But I have, I have, you were, oh, there's no question that I fought tooth and nail for decades. So this is not really different in a way. If we're going to say that we are going to be diverse, inclusive, we need to do something that shows that we're doing that really not just mm-hmm. as you say give lip service to it. Well what yeah. okay so here's the crystal ball part. What do you think your best guess is as to what's going to happen in Arkansas?
2: Oh, I wish I knew. Um <laughs> wouldn't that be nice you to, know, be able to say Let's I'm, I'm do this. so much I'm yeah, I'm so much better at trying to predict trends in in what's happening in cycling as opposed to what's going to happen politically and happen in Arkansas. Oh, I could I, ask you
1: that too real quick.
2: <laughs> you know, I just I want to believe that USAC and UCI cycling will do the right thing and move the event. I think that there's a lot of very positive momentum moving in that direction in terms of what the community writ large, what people in cycling are demanding. I think that there's too much for them to lose in keeping everything in Arkansas uh, in terms of Potential financial fallout from a boycott, as well as the the negative uh, PR of continuing to hold the event there. So uh, I I want to believe that better things will happen. The cynical side of me says eh, they ain't going to do a dang darn thing. Um, You're allowed to swear I'm, on I'm... this
1: show. We're we're not on <laughs> we're not on public radio.
2: <laughs> this, I meant to ask that disclaimer earlier in the show. Well, uh, you know, part of me thinks we are not going to do a damn thing, and I think that's just incredibly shitty. But um, you know, I I want to believe that momentum is going in the right direction. They have time to get their feet underneath them, pull up their big boy pants or big girl pants, and and do the right thing. And I think the pressure is on for them to do the right thing. Um, beyond the the world's events, I really I really hope that the industry will evaluate what it does in Arkansas beyond this moment, beyond their Instagram posts about how they believe in inclusivity and actually do something. That's what I'm most interested in seeing.
1: A lot of people did a lot of things to bring things to Arkansas in the last couple of years. I mean, you've Mm -hmm. got um, Unbound. Is that what it is? No, Lifetime. Lifetime Events uh, yeah, you've yeah. got the Waltons you've got a lot of clout and yeah. so the question is can they turn that
2: into political will to correct but if anybody's got the opportunity to make things happen in Arkansas it's the Walton family you would think so <laughs> I mean, one would think so you want you and, and they they are supposed to be huge supporters of cycling they need to be huge supporters of cycling that also includes inclusivity and human rights if they can make that step, if they can say, you know what, we're pulling all of our financial support for you, the politicians, right? Then they might get somewhere, and that's what they need to do. I, I I'm, again, the cynic in me is like, mm, not going to happen, but hopefully, if there's enough pressure from the cycling community, which is again, for lack of a better term, a bit more liberal, they will push them in the right direction. I'm, I'm hopeful, hopeful, hopeful. I, I, And I just know that there's momentum right now. And I hope that that continues.
1: All right. So I am going to pick your brain. One quick question, because you did say you do trends, bicycle industry trends. (laughs) And and I really appreciate your perspective on this entire situation in Arkansas and beyond. It isn't just about Arkansas. We know that. It is about the way the industry is going to live up to its promises and live up to its words. So the one question I have for you is when do you see the supply chain breaking loose so kendall young did
2: did did the editorial before you and he's on the show next week oh he's a good friend of mine you'll enjoy talking to him
1: i am sure and he he, you know he is suggesting this multi-channel supplying which of course if you're Mm -hmm. in the bicycle business like we are you already have 30 people and you're all asking them all for the same thing i need brakes i need chains i need shifters Mm -hmm. i need cranks
2: i need tubes (laughs) (laughs) One of the most important things that people can't get to. But do you see when this is going to break loose? You know, I had an interesting conversation recently with uh, someone. I don't want to out anybody on on this, but uh, I had a conversation with someone who works for one of the major component suppliers, and they are forecasting that things don't break loose until 2024. They're already getting inquiries about 2025. That's how far the backlog goes. Because the supply chain can't ramp up fast enough, but demand is being forecasted to them at least to remain very high. Um, So do you think that, and this is is a worry of mine, this is something
1: I actually mm -hmm. think about, and that is at some point this mini bike boom or major bike boom that we're having, if people really cannot get supplies or new bikes or whatever it is mm-hmm. they need to go out mm-hmm. and ride their bike, mm-hmm. they're going to say, I'm going bowling.
2: Yes. On t- on top of the fact that prices are going up because of the lack of supply. So prices and availability are both going to drive consumers away. Yeah, this this boom is going to bust. Absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind that this bubble is, along with the same sort of irrational exuberance to revive a cro- quote, quote from the financial and housing markets, it's this bubble is going to bust. I I will stake my career on that comment because I know it's going to happen. But here's the qualifier is that for sure we're going to come out of this bust being better off in terms of the market overall than we were prior to the pandemic. There will be some level of retention of that growth, but it's it's right. not going to be the same rate of growth that we are seeing right now. It's simply unrealistic, and that's why you don't see SRAM, Shimano, or Campagnolo creating second, third, and fourth supply channels of their own to be able to produce more components because they know that it's not going to happen. On top of the fact that. Even if they wanted to, I mean, you can't make a factory just grow overnight. You don't plant a seed, water it, and boom, by spring, you've got a factory. Right. It doesn't work that way. I mean, you're talking about raw materials. You're talking about fabricating machines, all of those kinds of things. They don't just happen. And people say, well, oh, we just got to do it here in the U.S. Good luck. Right. <laughs>
0: right. You'd have to
1: repurpose factories that have long been shut or are gone now. And there are a few. Yeah. But, you know, then you see people like Paul and Chris King and, mm-hmm. uh, and those people really ramping up, but they can't keep up. So it's just an interesting yeah. conundrum. So mm-hmm. it's just I'm watching things happen. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not in regular retail anymore.
2: Yeah, it's uh, been a really weird, weird year. I mean, I've got a, a good friend who has a small shop here in San Diego who, for the first time, is is completely operating uh, at a profit. Everybody he owes money to is paid. Uh, he's able to pay cash. He's completely flush. Looking at you know being able to continue to be profitable now, um, and and that's that's awesome. It is awesome. But it, it's it's also. Uh, He's smart enough to know that as soon as enough people get vaccinated, right. there's going to be fewer people riding, and they go into big cities. San Diego really isn't that big a city. We we have pretty crappy um, mass transit, but you go to the bigger cities that do have mass transit. Their mass transit is never going to recover. It's never going to recover. It's going to be at much lower numbers. Right. But there will be people returning, and you know that's that, that's going to take some of the the hit but there will be a greater number of commuters in urban places. And as an industry, that's another category that we've always neglected. We don't do enough because it's not sexy. You don't win the tour de France on a commuting bike. So how do you market that? You know, and and that's a reality that we have to embrace e-bikes, same thing, right? We just haven't found a way to make that sexy, but you know, Keeping people on bikes and, and watching cities become decluttered of cars, I, to me, I think that's really, really sexy. I want to see more and more of that. And
1: watching the new Secretary of Transportation ride his bike, yes.
2: it, it doesn't yes. hurt either. Well, this, I am super optimistic about that.
1: Yeah, me too. Well, this has been awesome, and I really appreciate you making time to talk with me. I know that you are swamped. We are all swamped. We are all sort of overwhelmed by all of the things that are happening all at the same time. Um, And so, once again, we've been speaking with Tim Jackson. He owns Pow Word Communications. We will put a link to his editorial, The Industry Has an Arkansas Problem, on the Outspoken Cyclist blog. Thanks for talking with me. Have a great day. Certainly, Diane. All right. Tim Jackson is the owner of Pow Word Communications. If you're interested in his editorial, there is a link to it on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, for the April 10th show. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we're heading to Providence, Rhode Island, for a chat with Max Pratt of Pratt Frameworks. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to BikeLaw.com.
2: You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland, 88.7 FM, WJCU
1: University Heights. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. By chance, I was looking at the list of exhibitors from the Builders' Ball of 2020. Of course, the event had to be postponed due to the pandemic, but I decided to check into a few of the builders who were new to me and saw Pratt Frameworks. I clicked on the link and really liked what I saw. Of course, the bikes are lovely. But it's the other things that Max Pratt, who calls himself a frame designer rather than a frame builder, is not only saying, but what he is doing that made it so compelling to ring him up. Hi, Max. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. What's going on in your neck of the woods?
3: Not much. It's a beautiful day. Um, We had a nice weekend, so we were out cutting wood and
1: yeah. Cutting wood?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do a, a little bit of woodworking as well. And we were chopping up a, a beech tree that had fallen down over the winter.
1: Oh, poor tree. I always feel sorry for trees that get chopped down and people don't pay much attention to them. They don't like honor the tree. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, that's why it's nice to be able to, you know, we can we can use the wood for something, whether we burn it or make some spoons or poles or whatnot. But.
1: Cool. Cool. Well, let's talk about Pratt Frameworks and the the work that you do. I found it very interesting that you sponsor teams. And, you know, especially today, people aren't racing as much. I think they will be, but I'd, I'd like to hear about how you came to that. But I would like to know a little bit about you first. Tell us a little bit about your background and then how you became decided to become a frame builder.
3: Yeah, for sure. So, I was a bicycle mechanic in Boston um, at a shop called Cambridge Bicycle, and I worked there uh, and sort of really fell in love with the industry and the people involved in in bike shops and in sort of cycling in general at that uh, ground level. And then I went off to uh, the Rhode Island School of Design and studied furniture design. And there I did you know a bunch of woodworking and a little bit of metalworking. I learned how to weld. I kept cycling and I was part of the RISD cycling team. I got to know people um, who were racing bikes and they eventually caught wind that I knew how to weld and they were like, Hey, can you weld me a bike? And one thing led to another and uh, I ended up (laughs) really enjoying it and and building a lot for friends who were racing. And that sort of like started out this whole R&D process of testing the bikes by racing. And so... You know, there really was never a time where I wasn't working with, with bicycle racers and also a frame builder. It's an interesting interesting approach to the industry. I think a lot of people, you know, they'll go to a frame building school or they'll they'll apprentice with a frame builder and then that will be sort of their inlet into the industry. For me, it was a lot more indirect into into frame building. It was just sort of a means to an end. Like we wanted to design racing bikes and Fabricating them was just like what we had to do because we weren't going to order a hundred bikes from Taiwan with the off chance that they might be good. And then I sort of got more into the uh, the idea of being someone who's building locally and and you know really supporting this this traditional industry of frame building.
1: Interesting. Uh, it, it's a it's an approach that I don't often hear. Did you ever work for another frame builder?
3: No, no, okay. no, no. Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I was completely self-taught. Uh, I mean, well, I can't really say that. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people who I bugged for advice were extremely helpful. You know, I knew, I knew Chris Henry from 44 Bikes had gone to RISD, so I bugged him a bit. And then between, you know, between YouTube and asking a lot of questions and making a lot of mistakes and a few years of sort of trial and error, building bikes, breaking them, rebuilding them, um, I eventually got to a point where I I had some idea of what I was doing. But even still, I'll, I'll still bug you know, Chris or or other people in the industry for advice when I need it.
1: Sure. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you, and then I, I have a question about braking and, and, and rebuilding bikes. We're speaking with Max Pratt from Pratt Frameworks in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, I came across him because of Builders Ball, which... I hope it's coming back in 2021. I haven't talked to Eric recently, but we missed it last year and we were hoping to be able to go and uh, and visit again. So you mentioned building and breaking and rebuilding and and I find that really interesting. There were people who were willing to get on these bikes and break them for you. <laughs> and that's that's one of those things that that I always worry about, you know, putting somebody on a custom frame or pair of wheels and having something happen. Now it's never happened in our in our end, but apparently it's something you want to happen to make changes on your end. So tell us how that works.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean I'll say like it's never you never want to put anyone in danger, right? So right. you never want to do something that would uh, endanger someone. Of course, we all we all sort of end up with liability insurance for administrative reasons, you know, we need them to get accounts with um, various distributors and whatnot, but you know, frankly, if if you need to use your liability insurance, uh, you're in big trouble. So I think, for the most part, when I say like uh, building bikes and breaking them, rebuilding them, it's mostly like we can we can build something, we can ride it, we can see, you know, is there too much flex in one area? Do we want this area to be more flexible, less flexible, and then also doing some long-term testing. So like, where can we put drainage holes inside the frame um, to optimize the lifespan? Like, are we getting too much rust in one area? So we'll, we'll build a bike up, we'll ride it in the mud for a year and we won't ever clean it and then take it all apart and um, and see what's rusting and what's not rusting. Hmm. And that gives, gives me a better idea of sort of like how I can change my process to make it better. And I think everyone everyone's doing this uh, to, on on some scale. You know, most builders will ride a bike that they built, and it really helps you to sort of get an idea of what issues might come up. I have had people who you know they have a big crash and they bend a tube or they break you know part of their part of their frame, and sometimes it's repairable. Sometimes they just need to have a new frame built. But for the most part, the folks who are actually testing for me are the people who race on the team and also some folks that I work with as collaborators. So, you know, one, our graphic designer, Marcus Peabody, he was one of the first people I built a bike for, and he's ridden them for five years now, and he does a lot of uh, of sort of testing of new ideas. So if I have a new idea, I'll build a frame, I'll give it to him, and I'll say, okay, ride this and uh, let me know what you think and what whatever issues you have. And, you know, that happens for, three or four different people before anything ever gets to, you know, the customer end of things.
1: So interesting. So you're basically building tag welded steel?
3: Yeah, yeah. So everything is tag welded, um, mostly Columbus steel. Sometimes I'll use just chromoly tubing and we'll shape it here in the shop. And then sometimes we shape the Columbus steel in, in the shop as well.
1: Hmm. So you basically build two types of bikes, fixed gear Meaning either track or single speed, just with the, probably with one brake, maybe and off road. So, why did you choose those two categories, and um, how is that going?
3: Well, I mean, obviously the off road thing is going great. Um, well, that's true. <laughs> you know, there's there's this huge movement towards off road riding, especially now that uh, racing is less frequent. I think the gravel and adventure riding is really is really appealing to people because they don't you know, they don't have to be riding with friends for it to be fun. Um, you know, you can go on a solo or a two-person ride and it can be uh, a really incredible time. And I think it's a lot more interesting than road riding or riding on a velodrome for some people. I started building track bikes because we started the the racing team as a track team, but the first bikes I built were actually uh, cyclocross bikes. I've always been very interested in cyclocross. I think it's, you know, it's a very fun exciting sport. There's lots more to it than just like being strong, you need handling, you need uh, a plan, you need a really good pit crew. It feels like it's a, a lot more exciting of a race both for the spectators and for the the team who's racing. And I do build road bikes occasionally, you know a lot of folks will want just, you know, a, an old school rim brake road bike and and I enjoy building them, but it's not really what I specialize in.
1: Okay. You know your specialty. I, I'm, we're not going to go into the disc brake, rim brake conversation. I do it with everybody, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it with you because I can see where you're headed. Obviously, your cross and off-road bikes are disc for the most part, and your fixed gear yeah. doesn't matter for the most part. Yeah, and I mean,
3: you can as, as much as you feel like, you know, having the conversation, you're sort of at the whim of the component manufacturers, you know, like uh, Shimano and SRAM are, gonna, are going to choose to make you know their next group sets in disc or rim and you know if their own if their cyclocross group set isn't like doesn't come in rim brake then that's sort of like where the train stops because now everyone else is running you know a clutched derailleur and their chain won't fall off and if you if you're running a an older system that's because you want to use rim brakes then you're at a disadvantage with the drivetrain efficiency
1: well unless you go to uh something like paul brakes You can do that. Right.
3: Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Which, you know, brings us to a whole different conversation about U.S. production and design. But that really is another conversation, one that I would really like to have with a whole group of people like White Industries and Paul and Phil Wood. And we'll get to Phil Wood in a moment. Who's your customer right now? what, like, what's the demographic of the person or persons who are buying your bikes? And I see you have women on your team. So I'm not gonna, it's not a gender conversation. It's a, it's a, you know, basically age and what kind of people are buying your bikes?
3: Yeah, it's mostly uh, folks who are, you know, between 28 and 45. It's funny, the the demographic that uh, buys custom bikes, that stereotypically buys custom bikes is basically the the, the customer that most, uh, most custom builders will have. I think that there's, you know, there's a price point conversation here as well. Like wherever you land your prices, it's sort of where, where your customers land. For the most part, my customers are people who are excited about um, about the team and they're excited about our design work. So, you know, they like the, the look of the bike and the feel of the bike and the, you know the design choices we're making, the builds we're doing, more than they might necessarily want, specifically to have a custom bike. I think there's a lot of builders right now who you can buy a TIG welded Columbus frame from. So, you know the the challenge really as a as a custom builder who wants to who wants to be relying on on exclusively customers, is to be uh, unique enough and striking enough visually i think to to draw customers to you
1: that's interesting because you you mentioned marcus peabody somebody who does your graphic design so you have somebody i won't say on staff but available to you to change up design as you build your bikes are you changing are you changing graphics continually or have you chosen something that sticks i've seen I, I went through your Instagram account a little bit today and I saw some of the jerseys and I, they're, they're striking. They're really cute, beautiful. Though the one girl in her Jersey with, I think it had a matching helmet. I'm not sure. I have to rewind my memory here. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah it did. Yeah, So every year we try to change the graphics for the teams. One of the things we talk about a lot is to really not become complacent in our, in our design work. You know, if the frames all stay the same, so, so be it. But if, if the bikes all look the same, then it's just kind of boring. And I don't think the frames do stay the same. You know, that's just the nature of someone who's a maker is that they're always trying to improve their craft and their materials and, and their methods. But I do think that as far as design work goes, you know, I work with a, a couple of different people actually, and, and we're just talking about starting a program where we bring in guest designers, and artists to actually work on the graphic design, because that's, it seems like an opportunity that um, that would be really great.
1: It does. I like that idea. Uh, Before we go for a break here, I want to ask you a couple more real quick questions. And that is, are you willing to tell me how many bikes you're making a year? How many frames you're building a year approximately? I mean, what is, is there a goal or is there an actual number?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it varies for sure. You know, sometimes we'll get in a contract order and I'll build a, a larger batch of bikes, but they won't actually be they won't be necessarily like Pratt Frameworks bikes. They won't have my name on them, although they are built in this shop and they might have some watermark somewhere. Uh, and we do that with a couple of folks. And then we also, you know, I build all of the custom bikes and the team bikes. And I think it's about like, gosh, if I had to make a number. Um, I'll make it up. <laughs> yeah. Right. I could tell you anything. I do think that, I would love to, to sort of be at hundred bikes a year. And I would love to set that limit for myself because if you can set a limit for yourself, there's a lot of less pressure of like, you know, you can just tell someone, you know, we're sold out for this year, wait till next year. And also you don't, you know, you can actually take some time off, which I think a lot of builders want to do don't get to do some of them do. I know some folks who build for nine months of the year and take the summer off. I know some folks who build a bike a week and that's sort of their, their gauge of, of timing, but really it fluctuates between, you know, when, when are people looking for bikes? Everything gets really condensed in the summer and I build a ton. And then over the winter, it's, it's much, much slower.
1: So do you have a long queue right now? What is your weight? So somebody says, I'm going to place this order for this fixed gear bike today. When will they get it?
3: Yeah. So the weight right now is about five months. Um, and that's inclusive of, you know, the, if you put down a deposit today and you said, you know, Let's start the building process. Uh, we could have all the conversations about fit and um, and paint and everything like that. and then five months from now, you'd have a bike.
1: Providing we could get parts. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. yeah, yeah. we are selling we are selling just frame sets right now because okay. you know because it's so hard to find parts. Right. Um, so for some folks, it's just like you know, send me a frame, I'll use the parts for my old bike or send me a frame and I'll I'll wait around for parts so you don't have to.
1: Let me reintroduce you. Uh, And we're going to take a short break. We're speaking with Max Pratt from Pratt Frameworks in Providence, Rhode Island. Really interesting conversation. Uh, I really enjoy this sort of perspective that you take. Uh, We're going to take a break. As I said, you're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We'll be right back. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. We're speaking with Max Pratt. He is the Pratt of Pratt Frameworks. And there you have it. And we were talking about how long it was going to be a wait for a bike and that we are running into issues right now. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I want to talk a little more about your racing team and uh, a relationship that you had with Phil Wood and a specific project. But I'm wondering what you see as the biggest jam-up when it comes to parts right now i mean we're seeing it in things like cranks and brakes Uh, are you seeing it in other areas that i'm not maybe yeah
3: so i mean i think there's two big issues with um with what's going on right now and you know one of them is about the racing team but you know primarily as far as uh building and selling bikes goes yeah parts is a huge issue you know we can't get any parts from thram they're out till almost august now i think some parts are even out till October of next year, and I think that's just you know there's shipping delays, there's manufacturing delays. Everything is just sold out. You know the bicycle boom has taken its toll on the availability of parts, and I think particularly for U.S. May- manufacturers like you know Phil Wood is in- incredibly backed up. Um, Chris King is backed up. I know I don't know how uh, Paul and White are doing, but they're I backed do up. Know that-
1: <laughs> they they're yeah, putting on more shifts, running twenty four seven. Yeah, they're running yeah, every day. Yeah. yeah.
3: And you can see, you know, you can see videos of of these, you know, large companies, you know, they're investing in equipment and they're buying new CNC machines, you know, they're buying, they're hiring new staff. And I guess it's really a question of um, whether this interest in bicycles and particularly in, you know, high-end parts is going to maintain or sustain itself. Right. Um, I'm curious to see, you know, how it all pans out in the next five years. I do hope that the momentum, uh, that we can all keep the momentum up because it's really been Really been great to see more people on bikes.
1: As long as we don't get to that tipping point of people becoming discouraged because they can't get a bike and then (laughs) turning to something else like, let's go bowling or or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your team first. How do you choose your team members? How have they come to you? How many team members do you have? And I take it you have two separate teams one for fixed gear, one for off road.
3: Well, sort of. So we have. We have one uh, sort of umbrella team, uh, which is Pratt Racing, and that encompasses everyone who races on uh, bikes that I build. And it also encompasses, you know, like uh, a few of the people that I work with who just, you know, they're not professional racers by any means. They just enjoy racing bikes, and they also race on uh, bikes that I build. Everyone on the team races cyclocross. And then uh, four of the people on the team who raced cyclocross also raced fixed gear and track. You know, but the team began as a fixed gear and track team. And it was sort of the folks who I was interested in, in working with and who I knew you know, were, were good people. You know, results weren't really a part of the team, and they, they still kind of aren't. A lot of teams will, you know, the amount of support you get depends on your race results. And we really don't like that model. So the people on our, on our team are really like the folks who were there when the team started and then the people who they think would be a really good fit. And so everyone on the team gets run by everyone else on the team before before they're brought on. Um, and we sort of have conversations like, you know, who do you want on the team next year? How many more people can we support? Who would be a really good fit? And fit meaning, you know, like their, their personality meshes well with the personalities on the team. You know, they believe in the primary mission of the team which is promoting inclusivity and they are they're excited to sort of race on steel bikes
1: how do you afford a a team given the nature of the industry in terms of margins and profits i mean granted custom builders can charge more what they want and what they can charge given what they're doing. And so that you have that model, which is different from Trek saying you're selling this bike for twelve ninety nine. I don't care how much it costs you to get it in. And, right. you know, and the guy down the street is discounting it $15. So it's a completely different model, business model, but it is not inexpensive to have jerseys and helmets and, sh- and shoes and gloves and, and bike bikes. That's
3: where you get into sponsorships, you know? So like, our team has always really depended on its sponsors to be able to operate. You know, it's not like my, it's not like me selling bikes is supporting the team. Like if someone wants to buy a bike to support the team, they should just donate money to the team. <laughs> right. um, but if the, you know, when they, when they buy a bike, they're supporting me and then, you know, I'm supporting the team as the, as the team manager and the mechanic. And so as far as like, you know, clothing, we get all of our clothing from Velocio and it's, you know, fantastic. We have a great relationship with them. You know, they support the team because they believe in what we're doing. And, you know, the same is true of any of our sponsors. And I think that, I mean, that takes a huge burden off the athletes. And that's sort of the whole point of of running a team in the first place, you know, aside from the selfish reasons of wanting to test my bikes, it's not really about that anymore. It's more about um, finding ways to support athletes who would otherwise be unsupported.
1: Saying that, who are the kinds of athletes you're supporting who would not otherwise be able to race a bike like yours? Yes,
3: we're a women's cyclocross team, but we're also a WTF team. So we have you know, trans athletes on our team uh, who race UCI cyclocross and also race on the track and race six-year And I think that our goal is to sort of promote an industry where where women can, can bike, you know, at the same, and race bikes at the same level as men as racing. And that's really, you know, the primary goal of the team from the start was to be um, a really rad women's fixed gear team. And then we sort of expanded out because the athletes wanted to race more disciplines, you know? And that really determines the fate of the team. Is like, how, how, do you, how are the athletes feeling? What do they want to be racing? Um, you know, if they all tomorrow, said we're done with fixed gear and, and cross, we want to be a gravel team you know it's my job to say okay what can we do to support you like we need to call SRAM we need to get bigger gears you know it's part of the fun of it because it's sort of up to it's up to the team to determine what they want to do with with the support that we're given
1: I do want to talk about this relationship you had with Phil Wood now <clears throat> I mean Phil Wood makes such amazing parts. What was the, the relationship you had with Phil? What was the project you worked on with them?
3: When we started the, the team, we wanted to race fixed gear crits pri- primarily. Um, and that's, you know, okay, like that's crazy. Crit. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a very dangerous type of racing. Um, the brakes are illegal. Uh, there's not really any regulation on what the bike has to look like. It just has to be safe. I think they check your lock ring tightness, they check your cockpit, and they check that you have no brakes. And if you do all those things then you can race.
1: This is like Red Hook?
3: Yeah, Red Hook and uh Mission Crit and okay. um you know Red Bull puts on a number of events. That was the the idea for the team at the beginning. And so we built all of these track bikes um but before we even got into any of that, you know, it was like who are we going to work with? You know, who's going to sort of like make this happen? You know, we can we can want it all we want, but running a team like this, like you said, you know, it's expensive. It also requires actual parts. And, you know, fixed year bikes are less complicated. You know, they're pretty simple. But if you want to be competitive, you also need to have pretty excellent parts. You need very stiff wheels. You need aerodynamic rims. You need hubs that, that run very, very smoothly. And you need stiff, stiff cranks and drivetrains and chainrings and everything like that. It was a little bit of a question of, you know, how are we going to actually pull this off? And so I called Phil Wood not really knowing anybody there. It was just a cold call. And uh, Peter Entright picked up the phone. And
1: You got the right guy. <laughs>
3: I got the right guy, yeah. So I would say like 90% luck, 10% uh, me being able to, to talk my way into the door. And we had, I think, almost a two-hour conversation about you know, what our priorities were, um, you know, as people who make objects in the industry, you know, what we think is great, what we think is not great and what I was trying to do with the team. And Peter said, okay, you know, send me an email with all of this information about the team and who's going to raise on it, and we'll see what we can do. And I uh, I can't really thank Peter enough for for believing in, you know, what we were trying to do and, and being willing to support it because it just, it ended up being really, really amazing. And so we're still, you know, we're still working with Phil Wood uh, with the fixed gear and track team. And that year, you know, he sent us hubs. We built up all the bikes with, stillwood hubs and headsets and seat clamps and then we went on to to win track national championships in the in the team pursuit and that was you know a really exciting opportunity you think um yeah exactly um and you know we did we did great in the fixed gear crits as well and we ended up we you know we flew to switzerland for a race it was just a really really great year
1: i guess that's really really cool one more time, I want to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Max Pratt from Pratt Frameworks in Providence, Rhode Island. Different perspective on custom bicycles, really coming from, in my opinion, a design perspective, which I, which I really enjoy. I have a um, sort of a quasi art background. And so know what it takes to think of it from that perspective as opposed to from the engineering perspective which is not to denigrate engineering at all because it's really important especially <laughs> in bicycles.
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, and what are, think, yeah, go ahead. No, I I think that there's uh, there are maybe three types of of frame builders. There are engineers, there are artists, and there are designers. And you know, artists might carve lugs for 3 hours and and they'll make an extremely beautiful bike and I you know, I'm I'm very envious of the skill to be able to do that. And there are engineers who are interested in chasing, you know, a perfect bicycle made of steel, um, by blending different types of tubing and, and, uh, you know, trying out new techniques for, for attaching tubes together. And I think designers, which, you know, I think of myself more as a designer than either of the other two. I'm just interested in sort of having fun and making bikes that are not boring and that are fun to ride and, and get the job done.
1: Clearly all of it works. I mean, you, you kind of need all of it to make the whole custom industry work. Which has been interesting to watch, having been in regular retail from many, many, many years ago, becoming a custom only shop where we didn't build our frames. Had seven in Waterford build our frames. To now, my mm-hmm. husband builds his own frames, and so watching the evolution of that custom market and seeing, even though they've always been there, I mean, there's always been a Richard Sachs and there's always been you know all of these people, Columbine, all, but now there's this young group and they're so passionate and so smart and you have the internet that helped to share it all so it's just a really different vibe really different
3: yeah absolutely and i love it i think instagram has done uh, has done some pretty amazing things for the frame building community you know it's really helped to connect us especially this year when we were without any of the uh, the trade shows it's been it's been nice to sort of follow along on all the people that you that you know um, from the industry.
1: Well, and that takes me to where we're going to sort of wrap this up. What do you see for the rest of 2021? And whether some of these shows like NABs and, and Builders Ball and Philly Bike Expo and all of those are going to come back?
3: The word that I've gotten is, uh, Philly Bike Expo is intending to come back. The international shows are, are definitely running. And, you know, from a, from a frame building perspective, sometimes it makes sense to go to those shows. I think, you know, (laughs) If I were to to run the numbers, it's probably not worth it to go to shows, but it's, it's just so much fun and you get to engage with the community and it's fun because you have an excuse to build, you know, exciting and new bikes. So I think we're going to go to shows this year for sure if they happen, but it's also about safety. You know, if if we can, if we can sort of maintain uh, a safe environment at a bike show, then I think it's great. But there is that question, you know, in the back of everyone's mind is like, what if Covid gets worse again, and, and we're just trying to do our best to to stay excited and hopeful for for shows like that.
1: Well, of course, the last thing we need to tell listeners is how to find out more about you and your work, and to wish you lots of luck in 2021. So, tell listeners how to get in touch with you and how to see what you're doing.
3: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the the primary place to get uh, the newest information and see the newest things that we're working on would be on Instagram, um, and it's just at Pratt Frameworks, P-R-A-T-T, and you can also find out about sort of the bikes, the pricing, uh, how the process works for ordering a custom build, and also learn a little bit more about the team on our website, which is prattframeworks.com, and then there's also like a team Instagram, which is um, fairly small and just sort of for promoting uh, the team and its activities and sponsors, Um, and that's at Pratt Racing.
1: Well, Max, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's very different from the usual conversation I have with a frame builder uh, where we talk about fit and we talk about design and we talk about, you know, the cue and all of that. I really think that you're on to something a little bit different and very exciting. I'm very happy to have had the chance to speak with you.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate it, Diane. It's, it's great to be on the Outspoken Cyclist.
1: No, oh, thanks. It's so interesting that I find such interesting people all the time. It's, it's fascinating. I love it. Well, Max, thank you so much. Have a wonderful spring and summer. If Builder's Ball happens, we will see you. We actually are hoping to go to French Fender Day if Peter Weigel decides to do that. And we'll be on the East. So uh, maybe we'll be able to stop and have a chat with Pratt Frameworks in person. Thank you. Max Pratt joined me from his shop in Providence, Rhode Island. If you're interested in knowing more, you can log on to PrattFrameworks.com. My thanks to Max and to Tim Jackson for joining me on the show this week. Please remember that you can always join the conversations going on all the time on our Facebook page or leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on most platforms and please rate the show on your favorite app. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of the show, including the piece on carbon pricing and the Business Climate Leaders Organization, and a lot more. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'd like to take just a moment for a shout out to one of my colleagues, Eldon Nelson, who made me cry this week with one of the nicest compliments I've ever received about the show. If you'd like to read it, check out our Facebook page. I hope you have a great week. Please stay safe. Stay well, and remember, if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show, and we welcome your thoughts and comments. We'll be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast apps, and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening. Ride safely, and we'll see you next week.